Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And if you want to find out more about us, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info and uh, you will there see our press release 670. Yes, we're up to press release 670. We've been going with our website since uh, 1998, but uh, we're still going strong. Now, we believe in public education, which is public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's public in access, and it should be publicly owned and controlled, and as well as that, it should be the only one that gets public funding from the public treasury because it's the only one that can be accountable. And our governments, if they in fact are responsible, representative, democratic governments, if they are this, they should be responsible and find themselves responsible and hold themselves responsible for providing a first-rate public education for every child in this country. Now, we know that this is no longer happening. It did happen once. It happened before the 1960s in this country, where we were second to none. In fact, in 1900, Australia led the world as far as education for every child was concerned. But we've been falling backwards since there's been a leaky sieve of public money going out uh, to the private sector. And things are not improving but uh, the one thing that the think tanks and others are concerned about because it's just bitten them where it hurts is the notion of inequality. Brexit, Trump, these phenomena, phenomena and even the independence in the Senate phenomena in Australia mean that there's a lot of disaffected, disadvantaged and angry voters out there who are questioning what their governments are really up to. Now, press release 670 says this. The heading is the reality and the rhetoric behind educational inequality. It's now politically correct to actually talk about inequality and even educational equality, inequality. No, Dale is shaking her head. She doesn't think it's politically correct. Well, it's politically correct amongst academics and those on the left of the political spectrum that don't want to confront the real baddies, namely the religious schools. Uh, they don't want to be called sectarian. But um, the whole notion of inequality actually is taking off overseas in the area of political economy with people like Piketty and Stiglitz. But more of that later. This is what we have written. Most of the commentary and debate in mainstream think tanks, interest groups and political debate circles around the issue of growing educational inequalities and the effects, that's if any are acknowledged, that this will have upon the national economy. That is what is happening. There is a lot of debate about this in the press and uh, on the internet. Finally, the political elite are waking up to the fact that their globalisation is good rhetoric, has not convinced vast swathes of disadvantaged, disaffected voters. Hence the Brexit, the Trump, 
and the independence in the Senate phenomenon. Academics, commentators for think tanks and politicians happily get bogged down in to fund or not to fund debates. Nobody is prepared to be politically incorrect and take on the poor parish school myth perpetuated by the religious lobby and work out why our 19th century forebears centralised public education, stopped state aid and educated increased equality of opportunity. The fear of being labelled sectarian lurks still in sensitive memories. And I had this experience in the last couple of weeks where Dean Ashenden of Melbourne University uh, was rather sensitive about the principle of separation of church and state and tried to put me down. But that's par for the course. We at the dogs don't worry about being put down. We've been around for a long time and the principle of separation of religion and the state will be around longer than us even. Now, the fear of being labelled sectarian is still lurking, I believe, in some of these sensitive memories, and only a few look up from the diversionary NAPLAN and PISA hairs let loose by number-crunching politicians and IT experts and consider the broader national and international tax rorting by multinationals, including those in the religious business, of course. This would mean talking about a revenue rather than a spending problem, wouldn't it? And coming to terms with the, with the much-depleted national treasury pie. So if you consider the commentaries of the last week, which are listed on our med- media site, you'll see that they are more about the coalition funding plans, reacting to those... And um, Minister Piccoli, who is not happy, up in New South Wales. And uh, James Molino down here in Victoria saying that we need to rethink school funding. Well, he certainly needs to rethink the way he is funding private schools. And Ken Boston, who is bemoaning the fact that Gonski is dead in the water, and also the NAPLAN results and Birmingham and others saying that we are putting too much money into schools and not getting the results that we should. But to be fair, Trevor Cobalt has written a press release which has lift and, and he has lifted his sights higher to look at the much bigger picture. Uh, Trevor notes that Apple and other multinationals are fleecing the disadvantaged. And this is what he writes. A groundbreaking decision by the European Commission has highlighted massive tax evasion by large multinational firms that depletes government revenue to invest in essential services such as health and education. The loss falls most heavily on disadvantaged families, of course, who get reduced access to quality health services and education opportunities for their children. The federal government claims that the $7 billion for the last two years of the Gonski School Funding Plan is not sustainable given the state of the federal budget. However, tax evasion by large multinational companies is a major drain on government revenue and it needs to be stopped to provide decent health and education for disadvantaged families and children. Well, we heard about the trillion dollars uh, in uh, Europe, but here in Australia, Apple also pays little tax by shifting profits on sales in Australia to Ireland. Now, listeners, we've known about this uh, tax shifting for the last 40 years and our governments have done nothing about it. In fact, the High Court judge who pulled the pin on it, Lionel Murphy, was punished most grievously by uh, the government and Camelco and the Fairfax Press when he uh, made a finding in the High Court, a dissenting judgment, and uh, exposed what was happening with the transfer pricing uh, tax system. But uh, 
people are starting to wake up that this is not just millions we're talking about. We're talking about billions and trillions and multinationals that are more powerful than governments. So what do they owe in Australia? Uh, last year, they only paid $85 million, despite making almost $8 billion in local revenue in this country. And nobody has done anything about that, I gather. An investigation by the Australian Financial Review found that Apple shifted an estimated $8.9 billion in untaxed profits from its Australian operation to its tax haven structure in Ireland in the last decade. So there you have more than the $7 billion that could be used to fund Gonski. And Apple is not the only company, of course. It's not alone in shifting profits offshore to reduce tax payments. A report by Oxfam in June this year estimated that nearly $20 billion was shifted out of Australia and into tax havens in 2014. And the estimated loss to tax revenue of this was 5 to $6 billion. And that's five to six billion that could otherwise have been spent on schools, hospitals and other essential public services. Now, we encourage our readers to read the whole article. It's on the SOS website, but you can also reach it by going to our press release 670 and clicking on the uh, relevant uh, URL. But dogs have found an even more interesting commentary on the extraordinary rorting of national national tax systems by multinational corporations and the resulting inequalities in advanced as well as developing nations. So listeners, we're not just looking at developing nations where whole billions and billions of dollars are actually moved by government heads, leaders, into tax havens. We're talking about countries like Australia, America, the UK and other European countries. We're talking about the developed world. And there's a question, of course, as to whether or not this is even happening in places like China and what happens to people in China who wrought the system. I don't think the Chinese government is particularly friendly towards them the way our government is. Now, the book that we found is a review by Edward N. Lutak of a book by Bastian Obermeyer and Frederick Obermeyer called The Panama Papers. Remember The Panama Papers? It was a bit like uh, uh, the Assange uh, Example uh, and, and somebody gave these people, Obermeyer and Obermeyer, uh, the Panama Papers on the internet, and they kept coming. They just kept coming, and now they've written a book. Dogs reproduces part of the uh, book review by Lutak on their website in this press release because. We think that readers should be aware of this. We think that our citizens should be aware of the money that is not coming into our government. Treasury. This is an extremely important book because uh, it could well be the most important book of the decade or the year. Not because it uncovers the thoroughly unethical behaviour of politicians in countries as varied as Iceland, the Prime Minister of which briefly resigned, though he will be contesting the next election, and he was only one of several ministers and ex-ministers there who had availed themselves of the service of Mossack Fonseca, and also in Malta, with plenty of the more predictable places in between. So it's not important just because it exposes these uh, people, they're almost criminals really, or even because it uncovers the exact machinery of corporate and personal tax avoidance and tax evasion that's been going on for decades, but rather because it offers an entirely new perspective on the greatest question of the age. 
And what is this greatest question of the age? None other than the question, why has income distribution in the more developed economies become increasingly unequal? Pari passu with the advance of globalisation. So they may not wish to always talk about disadvantage and inequalities in Australia, our politicians, but certainly on the, the international stage, it is a big question for the books that are being written, that are being read. So let's talk about the multinationals, globalisation and the growth of inequalities in the advanced as well as the developed economies. And Australia, of course, prides itself on being one of these advanced countries. And as we all know, listeners, anybody who's been around since the 1980s, we all know that things have become much more unequal. Now, globalisation's advocates, people are telling us that it's a good thing, and they are very many, including all the varied categories of worthies on both sides of the Atlantic and beyond, who preside over almost all respectable academic institutions and elite gatherings, habitually celebrate its transfer of income from higher income to lower income countries while disregarding the overwhelming evidence that much of that consists of the transfer of income from lower income people in higher income countries to higher income people in lower income countries. Now there's overwhelming statistical evidence to that effect uh, that has been presented by this reviewer, a man called Edward Lutak. In his book, The Endangered American Dream of 1993 and Turbo Capitalism of 1999, and another person called Robert Solow in the New York Review of Books and Paul Krugman in a purpose-written little book have attacked him as simple-minded xenophobe a sort of proto-Trump who had no clue about the wonders of comparative advantage in ensuring the best possible economic outcome for everyone. And isn't this what happens, listeners? As soon as somebody actually comes up with something that is uh, akin to the reality of what is actually happening, they are abused uphill and down dale and called nasty names. But less polemical economists have in due course paid attention to the evidence of the rising inequality in the more developed economies, even in ever so virtuous Norway. But they have then explained it as very largely the result of the information technology revolution. We've heard this in Australia, haven't we? And it continues to devalue, they claim, all forms of routine work in both production and distribution, as opposed to the globalisation caused decline in advanced country manufacturing that has driven once well-paid production workers into low-paid services. Others, of course, have disagreed, but actually nobody of political consequence has paid any attention to the growing inequalities until perhaps the people in the north of England voted to leave the EU. They were sick of that version of globalisation. They knew what had done to them and their standard of living. And that has remained the case. This refusal to look at the inequalities, and that, of course, is why Dale thinks that it's no longer and hasn't been politically correct, and I'm trying to argue that for some people it's becoming politically correct. Dale may be right, of course. Um, but in the last year or so, we've had Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, and this became the Havard University Press's all-time bestseller in 2014. Not because of that book's shortcomings, which have also been looked at, but it was just that national and international liberal elites were perpetually focused on north-south inequalities and never on internal advanced country inequalities. But then they were confronted in 2016, and we, dear listeners, have been part of this history, with horrible 
electoral surprises. In the United States, the victims of globalisation found their candidate in Donald Trump. By the way, the dogs are not promoting Donald Trump, in case you thought we were. And on the other side, with the the Democrats, they've been confronted with Bernie Sanders, a 70-year-old old man whom the young people love because he's talking to them. And over in the United Kingdom, Cameron thought he had his uh, his uh, referendum all tied up very nicely, but then there was Brexit. Now, that referendum has evoked shamelessly anti-democratic and madly over-the-top reactions from the princes of the international elite. Mario Monti, who's himself an unelected Italian senator for life on €147,000 per year, and the unelected ex-Prime Minister with a nice pension, as well as an ex-EU Commissioner of Note, has loudly proclaimed the Brexit vote itself to be an abuse of democracy. Well, I think that is the uh, kettle calling the pot black, isn't it? Or the pot calling the kettle black. So this is the context which has made the Panama Papers so very important. With this totally new evidence in hand, we can now know that globalisation has caused rising inequality in quite another way than the transfer of higher paying manufacturing jobs and all other such phenomena which is very unfortunate, but not shameful or criminal. It's just a matter of numbers. Mossack Fonseca's 214,000 offshore companies alone, the Australian tax office is interested in just over 100, between 100 and 200, but we're here dealing with 214,000 offshore companies and there are many other such shell companies formed by many other law firms, has handled not millions or billions, but trillions of dollars in their totality, thereby wholly subverting the presumptively equalising effect of taxation. And while the less affluent must pay their payroll taxes and income taxes in full, and of course we all now pay our GST, While the more affluent with offshore companies do not pay their own taxes, the total effect of the taxation system has become regressive, even without adding the inherently regressive effects of sales and value-added taxes. Once we recognise the sheer magnitude of offshore income flows, and once we take into account the strongly regressive effects of supposedly progressive taxation systems, the phenomenon of rising inequality in affluent societies may not need much additional explaining. And it hardly matters if those were tax avoidance or tax evasion trillions. Of course, a great deal of money in shell companies is neither of those things, being more simply the proceeds of theft from public treasuries by the rulers who control them. President Putin is is involved in this, unless the distinguished cellist is the improbable thief. But that is irrelevant to the question. The distinguished cellist there is um, a friend of Putin's, who has transferred huge amounts of money into these offshore companies from uh, Russia. It's irrelevant to the question of rising inequality in advanced countries because their rulers, such as David Cameron until recently, or the current Prime Minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, may avail themselves or benefit from perfectly legal tax avoidance via offshore shell companies. People who are as wealthy as Turnbull or Cameron are not wealthy through their own efforts. They are wealthy because they don't pay tax. Uh, And uh, he may in fact be 
now on the payroll of the taxpayers, but uh, one wonders how much tax over the last few decades he hasn't paid. But that, he's small fry beside, beside those political leaders whose names have been extracted from the Panama Papers until now. There is, dear listeners, four heads of state, four former heads of state, two heads of government, eight former heads of government and hundreds of ministers, regional governors, mayors, Chinese potentates or their stand-in relatives that are involved. And there's actually a list on Wikipedia, if you want to go to Wikipedia, to see who has been benefiting from the Panama uh, offshore companies and Mossack Fonseca. Now, among the many individual stories that have been offered in the book that has been written by the men who got hold of the Panama Papers or who were provided with them, each succinctly presented because the authors have no need to pad them, a number are exemplary in different ways. For example, Nick State Development SA was allegedly controlled by Jose Arnoldo Alaman Lacayo, the former president of Nicaragua, um, who was sentenced on December the 7th, 2003 to 20 years in prison for corruption to the amount of some 100 million. Or put differently, 50,000 times the average income of Nicaraguan citizens. And there's any number of Arab potentates and psychics who are Mossack Fonseca clients. And their offshore companies contain much more impressive sums than a mere 100 million. But some of those clients, along with various Russians and others, also happen to be on United Nation, European or United States sanction lists. Nevertheless, in February 2015, Mossack Fonseca forthrightly declared to the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is the southern German newspaper, that he did not accept any sanction clients. Their ever-so-respectable website still makes that claim, along with other affirmations of immaculate probity. What they didn't realise back in Panama is that Obermeyer and his cohort had already found the names of numerous sanctioned individuals, including Bashar al-Assad's key financial and economic operator, Syria's richest man, who's played a critical role along with his entire clan in keeping the regime going in spite of the catastrophic collapse of the country's economy. So you have all of these really... um, very close to criminal people who have been uh, bleeding their country of much-needed finance. And we need, in fact, to know a lot more about this and what is really happening in Australia, especially with the criminal elements and others. But I would very much like an inquiry, not just into Mr Dastiari and his Chinese friends, but into Mr Turnbull, and his offshore companies, and uh, the also into the people who are giving money from overseas companies to our political masters. Is it any wonder that we feel they are neither respons- responsible or representative anymore? So uh, this is a very good review, and you can read it on our website, but I won't uh, take it too much further. Um, it's a question, he, they believe, whether it's the outright crooks, the drug traffickers and such, who have actually been more honest fiscally than most. Uh, but um, some of them perhaps have, according to uh, the people who have done the research. So who are the criminals here? And what is really going on? And what can, in the end, be done about it? But uh, I think that's enough for me. Um, Apple uh, is in a bit of trouble. Let's see if the Australian government with Apple have got more get-up-and-go than the Irish government, who, on behalf of Apple, are going to appeal the uh, decision... Uh, that they, in fact, have been rorting the international tax system. Let's see if our tax office is going to be adequately resourced 
to go after those billions of dollars that they owe our public treasury and which could be used very easily to give us the best public education system that the world has ever seen. But let's have a bit of music and then I'll hand you over to Robert. You're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Thank you very much, Jean. Talking about international finance and taxation that has been not paid is very useful when we're talking about the education debate. Um, you know, we often talk about the separation of religion from the state. I'd like to separate the um, free market ideologues from the state. I'm sure we'd all benefit if they did that. But, um, yes, you're listening to the Dogs Program, Defence of Government Schools. We've just been listening, by the way, to Aaron Copeland, that was his little Appalachian Spring Suite, number seven, um, called The Shaker Melody, or The Gift to be Simple. Um, yes, simplicity is a virtue, I think, in all sorts of ways. But here on the Dogs Program, I'm about to expose something that's actually quite complex. Um, I would like to remind our listeners that um, some time ago, earlier this year, there was a report from the Victorian Auditor General into how taxpayers' funds were being used by the Catholic Education Office uh, for the benefit of the children of Australia who happened to be enrolled in Catholic schools. Now, the Auditor-General came out with a damning report. He spent over 12 months putting it together. One Auditor-General was um, uh, sacked through the process, but his replacement came out with a damning report saying that the way the Catholic Education Office in Victoria are spending and administering taxpayer funds was to put it best, opaque, and when they were able to actually get to find out where the money was going, they found that it was going to what the Victorian Auditor-General said was inappropriate places. 
money that was being given to fund students in Catholic schools was not going to those students in those schools, and extra money um, was being siphoned off to the wealthier Catholic schools in terms of facilities and benefits for those students which were already advantaged in the first place. Now, the Auditor General um, produced a damning report, and the response from the Catholic Education Office um, and Stephen Alder, who was is the um, leader of that organisation, was, we're not listening to what you say, you're just being all anti-Catholic and sectarian, and you would say that anyway, you haven't asked the right questions, and we'll decide, thank you very much, where the money, taxpayers' money goes, in terms of which school and when. We have our own methodology, we have our own systems, and we're not going to tell you what those methodologies and systems are. We shouldn't have to, because we're a religious organisation, and you're impinging upon our fundamental civil liberties and human rights and freedom of religion by even daring to ask. So go away. That's fine, so long as they don't take state aid, Robert. Well, indeed, but they do take state aid, and they're saying this specifically about taxpayers' money. They're not talking about the contributions they get in the plates at um, various religious uh, services they have. They're talking about taxpayers' money. The Auditor General um, fired back and said, no, I'm just talking about the numbers. I'm not being biased. I'm not being sectarian. We, the uh, representing the taxpayers of Australia, Victoria in his case, um, saying, well, we'd just like to know what your processes are and why it is that you're not spending the money like you said you were. Now, that sank without trace. Um, It was reported briefly in the Fairfax media, reported almost not at all um, in the Murdoch media, and it sank without trace. But the question still remains. Um, What is the process by which taxpayers' money gets spent? What is the process by which um, the organisation, which is the Catholic Education Office, how are they organised and what are the reasons? Well... As happens so often in these cases, you don't get the information until an insider blows the whistle. And on the 1st of June, an insider did blow the whistle. Um, The insider that blew the whistle whistle is actually less than 12 months off from retirement, and they felt they had to say something about the terrible things um, and and the wrong things that are happening within the Catholic education system in Victoria in particular. And the forum for this whistleblower was none other than the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses for Child Sexual Abuse. And the whistleblower, um, I'd just like to thank them here on behalf of the dogs because they are a very, very brave man. Um, They're coming to the end of their career, um, but what they have done and what they have said at this Royal Commission is is probably one of the bravest acts I've I've actually come across in the last little while. The whistleblower is, is Paul Tobias, who is still currently a principal at St Joseph's College in Geelong. And rather than paraphrase what he says, I think it's fair and reasonable that this whistleblower be given the dignity of speaking for themselves, and which they did at the Royal Commission, and this is what they said. He said, My name is Paul Francis Tobias, and I have worked in the area of Catholic education for the past 40 years. Over that time, I have worked as a teacher at a Christian Brothers College in St Kilda, Deputy Principal at a college in Warrnambool, Deputy Principal at a different college in Warrnambool, a Deputy Principal at St Joseph's College in Geelong, and then, as of the year 2000, a Principal of that school, and he's been in that position, and he's still in that position to this day. Now, he's going to retire, he says. I will retire at the conclusion of the year. My career has been based in Catholic secondary colleges, but I served for several years as the board chair of Our Lady of Help of the Christian Primary School in East Warrnambool. My observations outlined below relate to structure, governance, culture, power and authority in the Catholic Church. I have no doubt these systemic institutional factors have impacted on the occurrence of abuse as well as the Church's capacity to respond appropriately. Many of the observations I'm about to make in relation to the culture of the church may have contributed to the current crisis. Now, the crisis he's referring to, of course, is childhood sexual abuse. But in the process of what he says and what I'm about to share with you, he does actually outline not just sexual impropriety in the way it has been dealt with so poorly, but indeed the structures of the relationship between the Catholic Church and the Catholic Education Office.
He says, he goes on to say, in the year 2000, my first year as principal, I made a public apology for the abuse which had taken place at the college which I was now principal of in the preceding decades. I did so in the hope that some of the victims would have an opportunity to move forward with the assistance of appropriate redress procedures. The purpose of the Archbishop, sorry, I should say, the response from the then Archbishop of Melbourne, Cardinal Pell, could best be described as muted. I think at the time an apology was not considered an appropriate response. I subsequently met a number of victims and believed the Church had the best interests of the victims at the forefront, referring many of them to the Towards Healing process set up by Cardinal Pell, well, then Archbishop Pell at the time. I have, however, been incredibly disappointed to discover at the same time I was meeting with the victims, the senior Catholic clergy, including the Archbishop, were meeting with their legal representatives to develop strategies such as the Ellis Defence, which were designed to exhaust the financial and emotional resources of victims. This fact alone provides an interesting insight into the structure, governance and culture of the Catholic Church. Now, the Catholic Church, he says, and he should know, operates on a hierarchical structure, which means that incredible power and authority resides with the clergy, the priests, the bishops, the archbishops, the cardinal, and ultimately the pope. Now, during my time as principal, Cardinal Pell has been an extraordinarily powerful and influential leader of the Australian Catholic Church. Even from Rome, he exerts, in my opinion, significant authority and power over the direction of the Catholic Church in Australia, to the extent of maintaining the existing culture here. At the heart of the Catholic culture is too much power residing with too few people and not enough input from the laity. Few genuine forums exist whereby people can express dissent or different points of view. Those who do express their views can expect to be penalised, isolated and have their careers impacted. The prevailing culture was adequately highlighted for me in Cardinal Pell's attack on the former New South Wales Premier, Christina Keneally, and she expressed a contrary view, reporting in 2011 that, this is what Cardinal Pell says, you're either one of us or you're not. This has been the prevailing culture which has been applied consistently over the past decades. The prevailing understanding, therefore, is that clerics in our church, the Catholic Church, have the wisdom and the expectation of the rest of us, including those such as primary and secondary school principals, and that is to follow them rather than to think for ourselves or provide authentic leadership. The Catholic Church persists with antiquated governance models which are no longer appropriate rather than distribute power appropriately. The governance of many Catholic primary and secondary schools need urgent review. In the case of primary schools, the local Catholic priest is the administrator of the school. This is a role unsuited to many parish priests due to their other work commitments, lack of interest or expertise in education, lack of understanding in relation to modern work practices, etc. Robert, for 26 days in the High Court, these priests and others in the witness box swore that they had very, very little power in their schools and that the schools were not religious institutions. Here is a principle who's saying that, what, that that is not the case, saying it unequivocally. Mm. Well, we all know it is not the case. He says it can also mean that principals are pressured into positions and situations which they know are inappropriate. But since they are often relying on the priest who's running the school for their current and potential future employment, they are hopelessly compromised. Mm. Now, he says this is less likely to be a problem for Catholic secondary schools. But, he says, I and other principals still have a situation whereby the pastoral care of students can be compromised because of a position taken by Catholic bishops. The lack of clear guidelines and curriculum to negate the impact of homophobic bullying in the Archdiocesan schools of Melbourne is a clear case in point. As principals, we are frequently told that we are important components of the leadership of the Catholic Church. However, secondary principals quickly come to realise that their future careers, like those of their primary colleagues, rest with appropriate recommendations from the clergy and often, ultimately, the approval of the Archbishop of Melbourne. 
I would describe the relationship between Catholic secondary principles and the clerical hierarchy as at best immature. The Archbishop of Melbourne will, for instance, determine who is and who is not an appropriate speaker at an annual principles conference. The lack of maturity of the relation makes it difficult to conduct genuine dialogue around pastoral and curriculum initiatives impacting on our students and their families. The only effective link between schools and the bishops is Catholic education officers, primarily through their respective directors. Now the right, this is a right by the way, of the bishop to appoint whomever he wishes to a position to the director of Catholic education is apparently enshrined in canon law. Not common law, no, no. Not Sharia law, but canon law. This means that the Catholic Church is a state within the state. So we have canon law telling us how taxpayers' money should be spent to pay for Stephen Elder. Correct. It has certainly been the case that in some instances the appointment has been made without advertisement or interview. This practice does not represent sound governance principles. The cultural implication of such appointment is obvious. The lack of transparency can provide impetus for that director to make further appointments into senior positions with a similar lack of process and establish a mutual relationship between the director and the bishop, which is more likely to breed secrecy than transparency. I suspect also that a bishops appoint those who, for the most part, tell them what they want to hear, rather than challenge them, especially around matters such as sexual abuse. The end result is that issues are glossed over rather than being dealt with in an honest and transparent manner. Directors in turn can, in allocating resources, hear this, directors can, in terms of allocating resources, promote certain causes and largely ignore others. Now, this fellow... This whistleblower says, I commenced writing to the Director of Catholic Education in the Melbourne Archdiocese in 2004 in relation to the lack of any sanctioned program to deal with homophobic bullying, for instance, in Catholic secondary schools. This issue has consistently been ignored over the years. Principals like myself who express a view in relation to the pastoral needs of young people in their care risk suffering the cultural consequences implicit in the statement, you are either one of us or you are not. Mm. There are many aspects to the relationship between Catholic school principles and the Catholic church hierarchy which need to, to develop and change. The current power imbalance is unsustainable and inappropriate. The evidence before the Commission would indicate that the Catholic primary and secondary schools have been prolific providers of the victims of clerical mm. sexual abuse. Mm. It's interesting to note that as a group, Catholic primary and secondary principals who are responsible for the pastoral care of all children in their school have been largely silent through the entire crisis of the Royal Commission. This silence does not indicate a lack of conviction, but to me indicates a culture whereby those who are outspoken can expect consequences. It is not my intention, he says, to lay blame with any particular individual in relation to any of the observations he's made. But he's worked in the sector for 40 years and has loved the work that he has done. Now, to some extent, he says, we are all part of the culture and in hindsight I would act and react in different ways given what we know now. Each of us who work in the sector, both cleric and lay, needs to be reflective about what has been uncovered and what role we might have. And he says, just to conclude, that his greatest fear in terms of the work of the Royal Commission into the institutional responses to sexual abuse is that some bishops may have already concluded that because of the widespread nature of abuse across a variety of religious groups and other entities, the Catholic Church does not need to review its structure, governance and culture. If as the Church we fail to embrace the opportunities presented, nothing is going to change. Now, the point of tying in someone's uh, testimony, this very brave man, actually, I mean, he is a year off, well, he's a couple of months off retiring, so I can see why he's saying it now, but he obviously feels passionate, and he is a good Catholic man who has a conscience and has observed what's going on. Now, he has a big problem with the social justice issues, and he's talking about those. But here at the Dogs, even though those things are critical and important, I want to take what he said back to the Auditor-General's report. Mm. 
What he's saying is that the governance and the culture of the Catholic Education Office is that the ultimate person who decides where all the money is spent is not the director of the Catholic Education Office, is not his advisors, is not indeed in consultation with the principals and their needs. The person who decides with where the money gets spent at the Catholic Education Office is the Archbishop of Melbourne. Now, the Catholic Education Office has a great deal of resources. It has a great deal of resources because those resources are provided by me. They're provided by Dale, they're provided by Jean, they're provided by all of our listeners. The money that is given to educate the children within the Catholic education system, this man is saying unequivocally, the decisions made about those resources and how it is spent is actually by not an educationalist, it's, by, it's provided by an archbishop. And this gets to the fundamental problem about why, the fundamental problem that the dogs have been addressing all of these decades, all of all of half a century. This is wrong. This is just a simply inappropriate way for taxpayers' money to be spent because this man is saying unequivocally that taxpayers' money is being spent by the Archbishop of Melbourne for the benefit of his religion. And it's not a couple of thousand, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, no, it's not. It's millions and millions and millions. In one state of Australia, it's billions and billions across the country. And I think that is the point that this man has been, has been courageous enough to make. And I think it's drawing these two ideas together over a period of six months is what the dogs are all about. It's about exposing these things in a clear and simple way on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We'll be hearing a little bit more um, from Jean, but after, um, oh, I don't know, let's just have some, um, let's just have some Gershwin. the Middle Ages, isn't it? But um, there's also something else that I'd like to refer you to. One of our one of our uh, members gave me a very interesting Good Weekend from The Age, and in it is an article, How the Shoppies Union Abandoned Its Workers. Now, you may think that this is completely irrelevant to the cause of public education, but it's not. Because the Shoppers Union is an old DLP union and its bosses and most of the people who dominate this union are the graduates from the Roman Catholic system and adherents to the ideas of uh, Santa Maria. It is in fact known as a moderate union and was welcomed by the employers and has made a deal in recent times which has sold out 
all of its low-paid workers. It's a very interesting article indeed. It goes back into the history of the Labor Party split of the 1950s. There is actually nothing new under the sun. The dogs are the only ones who have ever been prepared to talk about all of this. And we are not afraid. We understand that the welfare of public education means that it is properly funded and that the money is not diverted into religious schools, a state within a state like the Roman Catholic system. But there are other systems, of course. There is the Lutheran system and there is also the Seventh-day Adventist system and the Anglican system. And uh, it is very important that we keep remembering and understanding why it is that we are in the situation that we are, which is really very dangerous at the moment, that Australia may not in the next 20 years have a public education system which is open to everyone. The answer to the state aid issue, of course, is that because so much money is being diverted and paid into these schools, both in capital and in um, ongoing grants, direct, indirect grants, it's time that we just took them over and made them public. It's more than time. If they want to be independent, then they should run themselves and finance themselves, but they should still be uh, looked over by and regulated by government authorities because we have seen what has happened when those authorities have fallen down on the job. We have in Australia a terrible legacy of children who have been sexually abused and also graduates from these schools who have undermined what unions should be doing, namely fighting properly for their workers. And, of course, this could well be the problem with both the Liberal and the Labor Party. Thank you, Jean. We've had a very interesting time delving into the facts and figures and ideas both from around the world and Australia. But you've been listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 and on the AM dial and, of course, podcast on the WWWs. If you're interested in what we've had to say, please feel free to investigate us even further at our website, www.adogs.info That's www.adogs.info But until next week, um, it's, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joey last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed. They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm dead. The copper bosses killed you, Joe, they shot you, Joe, says I, takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe, I didn't die. Says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, went on to organize. Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find I 